0: Visit stubforge.com and start making tickets today. Hello, my tribe of true crime addicts. It's Sarah from Conning the Con podcast here. And I imagine you and I have quite a bit in common. I am a complete true crime podcast junkie. And having had the opportunity to go to CrimeCon 2021 and meet all my fellow podcasters on podcast row, well, I was like a kid in a candy store. Not to mention all of the incredible speakers, exhibitors, authors that were also spilling the tea there all weekend long. So don't miss out on the next CrimeCon. It's in June on the 11th and 12th in London, 2022. Trust me, you don't want FOMO. Don't forget to use the code CTHEC at checkout to get your exclusive Con in the Con discount. That's C-the-C- You know, like conning the con. I can't wait to meet you all there. Hi listeners, this is episode 11 of 14. This episode touches on recovery from trauma, dealing with stressful moments and how to find calm. But it is just the tip of the iceberg. For more insightful tips and tools, check out the amazing Dr. Muir and her wealth of knowledge. She's got it all at DrSophieMuir.com and we are forever grateful for her wisdom throughout conning the con. And what you may not know is that prior to being conned, my little sister Emma was already a stress and breathing coach and so had more tools in the toolbox at the ready when the Tonks trauma tornado hit. For years, Emma has been sharing her wisdom online with her business, TheBreathEffect.com, where she teaches men and women around the globe how to reset after trauma, stress and life's big moments. And thankfully, dating a con man is not a prerequisite to benefiting from her tools. Her background as a physiotherapist, breathing and stress coach have created a unique process for men and women to learn how to rewire their brain and reset their nervous system following trauma. So if you're ready to reset your relationship with stress and move from survival mode to thrive, then check out one of her life-changing online courses and retreats. Head over to thebreatheffect.com. It really is jam-packed with free resources to get you started. As always, the links are in the show notes. And finally, don't forget to head over to our Instagram and Facebook pages to get involved in the conversations over there. And of course, get a sneak peek at what's coming up on Wednesdays when we drop the trailers. Is creeping. Don't follow, you know, life takes on some really interesting twists and turns. And sometimes you find yourself stopping and asking how you found yourself where you are today like right now like how the heck did emma and i end up making a podcast about a serial con man if you'd told 2018 sarah or 2018 emma that that's what our 2020 selves would be doing amidst a worldwide pandemic well i think we would have laughed you out of the room Since the start of the project, though, Emma has always been really laser-focused on the two reasons she wanted to share her very raw and very personal story. The first was to educate others so that they can protect themselves from falling victim to the world's complete oversupply of fraudsters. And the second is to share how to recover from trauma. And that's where we've arrived right now with this episode. We're going to share a conversation with Dr. Sophie Muir about how to manage stress and recover from trauma.
1: This isn't just about people being conned here. This is about anybody that goes through life's traumatic events.
0: I'm Sarah Ferris.
1: And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story
0: Conning the Con. The shadow dark, palm and tall in her hands, hold on my.
1: In today's episode, we're going to share a conversation with Dr. Muir, and it's about how to recover from stress and trauma. This is a big part of what I teach, and I wanted to have Sophie's input and get people to realize there's things that we can do to get our lives back in control and back on track after experiencing something like this or any big life change that you go through. So My background is a physio and it seems weird that I've moved into this world of breathing coaching and stress management. But it's this natural progression for me and the fact that our body holds so much tension and stress. And while we often look at the top two inches about it, I realize a big part of it is about the body. And so in today's episode, Sophie and I will be exploring what you can do, maybe a bit about what I did to help get myself back on track. And I hope it inspires you if you are feeling like you need help to reach out for it.
0: As a starting point for that conversation, we're going to share parts of Emma's victim impact statement, the purpose of which is to give the victim of crime the opportunity to have their say in court. It marks one of the first steps along the roadmap to recovery. And for Emma, it's the first moment to be heard and start to take back the power. I met the defendant in October 2018
1: when he went on Tinder dating app. From the day we met, he lied. He lied about his name, his businesses, his family. His history, I've always been a very trusting person before I met him, and he preyed on my kind, empathetic, vulnerable nature and used it to build trust with him so he could achieve his con. I never thought humans were capable of such an in-depth lie, especially when they work their way into your life and family. At points along the way, I remember saying to myself, but why would anyone ever lie about all the things he is saying? I dated him for just over five months, and while I know people have said to me, why did you give him money when you didn't know him for that long? I had treated it as a business arrangement. He'd shown me documents that I found out later were falsified, and that he said he had enough funds to pay me back whenever I wanted. Andrew deliberately set out to build trust. Not just through words, it was the actions that added to the layers of deceit. In hindsight, I recognised he set out on Tinder with criminal intent, And every action, date and text from him was calculated and a layer in the fake life he had made me believe we were building together. He'd worked his way into my life, met my extended family over Christmas holidays and in February he had met my kids. This was a huge step for me and I only wanted to introduce them to good people that I planned to have around. My kids thought he was fun and engaging and would ask when he was coming to visit. My heart broke again when I realised had involved children in his con all for just money. This is not a man who accidentally falls upon an opportunity to exploit someone on Tinder. All his moves have been calculated and premeditated. Andrew brought my trust by bringing his mother over to visit and she even stayed at my home for three nights and met my kids. Never over that time did he leave me alone with her so I could have a conversation with her and she never told me that he'd been in jail before for fraud. Who doesn't tell a woman who is single with two kids that she's dating a man with a criminal record? If it wasn't for my good friends that realised what he was saying didn't add up and digging so much deeper than I had, they found out who he really was. On the 8th of April, my life fell apart. What I had no idea was how bloody hard, scary and isolating the next three months would be. Well, I had to keep up the charade with a defendant and that one day... I might possibly want a relationship with him, or to be able to get as much of the money back as possible, trying to minimise that financial loss I had sustained from him. The minute I found out who he was, I worked with my bank and my brother to freeze the funds. This was the hardest day of my life. I knew that if I didn't step up that day, then I would lose all my money, and at 36 with two kids, I didn't know if I could recover from that. I had to play the victim to get Andrew to show up and transfer that money back to me. In the bank, Andrew tried to pretend to be nice, but his mask slipped and showed how angry he was. He threatened me that he could have my kids taken away from me for lying, which at the moment was rather I want, like coming from him. He also threatened he would hurt my brother in Christchurch and that he knew people that could hurt people. I had to keep calm and get through that moment. I knew there were cameras on me and he couldn't hurt me at that time and I needed to get my money back. This was only day one of the next three months of torture until Andrew was arrested. For the first two weeks after Andrew's identity was revealed, I feared for my safety and my kids. I had no idea who I was dealing with and what he was capable of. It wasn't until Andrew fled to Australia and the detective informed me that he had left, that I could relax just a little for our safety. Each day until his arrest was awful. He would send text messages that were lies, manipulations, and emotional torture. I'd been advised that if I was going to get any money back and get justice, I had to go and do what I could to keep up the communication. And this was hell. Many times I broke down. I still don't know how I got through those times and showed up to work as a physio, running my business and pretending all was okay. And really my life was falling apart. I had to work half a day at a time to survive. I wouldn't have had counselling to help keep me together and process the emotional abuse I'd sustained, but I was very much in it, and I know it would take me years to rebuild from the emotional scars he's caused. As the months went along, I learned about the other people that he'd been conning along the way, and that I was only a small piece of the puzzle, and they'd hurt many other people. The current financial cost to me with the money that he owes me is 98000 This is a huge burden and a loss to carry. I also know that he could have stolen $300,000 and I'm lucky to not be in more debt because of him. When I finally got the call that Andrew had been arrested, I dropped to the ground. I cried, laughed and screamed and my body shook finally letting go of the trauma that I'd been holding on to. I wish I had been smarter than that but I also know the emotional manipulation lies, trust he'd worked to build helped him position himself to take advantage of me and my family. I feel sick thinking about what he did, and I'm often paralyzed with the thought of letting someone else into in my life again. After what he has done, I'm not sure how I rebuild trust in someone. And that has left me feeling very isolated, lonely, and sad over the past few months since I found out who Andrew really is. I'm not sure I will ever get over what he's done. And he's made me a very different person because of it. My trust in men is very broken. And I continue, continue to be on edge when a man wants to get close, never knowing what is true and what is a lie. This is an awful place to be. Knowing that someone chose me as their mark and worked for months to gain my trust, more than just a business transaction, will haunt me. He used my vulnerabilities, my empathy and dreams to manipulate my life. I will eventually get over what did to me and hopefully one day I can learn to trust in time. But I will never, ever get over the fact that he involved my children and scarred their view of the world. There's a true psychopath that could do that. I've covered a lot of the emotional harm Andrew caused me throughout my whole statement. I've truly struggled to write all this as there is so much pain. And while I don't have any physical signs of abuse, the mental and emotional scars run so deep. My view of the world has foot ever changed by this one man's selfish actions. I am still scared that he could hurt me, that he will continue to hurt others, and this will forever haunt me for years to come. I want to finish by saying, Andrew, you have caused so much pain and destruction in your life. There is no part of me that believes you could be rehabilitated and do good in the world. I hope for the sake of your
0: future possible victims, you stop today. Well, that was probably one of the hardest pieces of the podcast to listen to when I was editing. I mean, that is my little sister and I feel her pain so acutely. But how was it for her to reread those words now?
1: Even though it's months and months after and I still feel like I'm in a really good space, I think when you reflect and read the words that meant so much to me, it does bring stuff up. It's also an okay thing that it brings so much up because those are the scars that are there. You know, Looking back over it, just reminding me of why I chose to fight back. I had a flashback to standing in the court. Man, I felt like a lioness. Just so strong and fierce. And I'm just so glad I had that moment and I did step up and do it. But I know people will hear it and they'll be thinking... Oh, you're so broken. <laughs> I'm like, but we all go through grief and trauma. And it's just the way that you learn to move it through it. And I guess it's something that I've learned with this idea of grief. When grief comes up, it's like, you know, it can be like a shape like a box. And this analogy works for me is that, that that box can then, over time, you build your life around that box and you, you know, you move on and you, you know, the box gets smaller. And then sometimes something will come up and whether it's the fact that he was released and that grief comes back up and it hits you like a wave that you have to ride. Then the grief box will go smaller and you build your life and you grow around it. And part of this experience is about me developing the tools and, and the knowledge and the awareness how to, to move through that. It's a really weird healing journey.
0: What would you say to someone who had been a victim of crime and they had the opportunity to do a victim impact statement and they were on the fence about it? Such a hard
1: one. Because I think one big part of that is feeling like you're supported and nurtured before you go in there, that you've got your person beside you that can help you get through. One thing is you don't actually have to read it out in court. For me, that was super powerful. So I don't think he even you know, heard me saying the words and, and, or believed it, you know, it was just like deflected off him, but it wasn't about the defendant, the con man, Mm -hmm. that moment Mm -hmm. of stepping up was all about me. And as much as I look at this whole process, it's about regaining power, regaining control and trust. And the big part was trust in myself. It didn't mean that it wasn't really hard. And I used all my breathing techniques to get through that day And that I didn't feel, you know, exhausted emotionally because I stepped up. But what I felt for me
0: was that bravery was the only option. Bravery to step up and tell my side. And how did you feel once you'd done it after all of that initial trepidation? So much relief. I think this feeling
1: of weight going off me, not because of doing it, but because I had my moment that victim impact statement is just one slice of this whole experience, but it was an important one. People had read the victim impact statement, like the judge and detective and and even the con man, Andrew, before I went in there. So they'd they'd visually looked at it. But, yeah, to be heard in that sense, it it is important. I think the biggest bit for me was (laughs) the judge's words. He'd sent... There was nothing that I did to warrant this, to deserve what this man did. Mm. That sticks with me as being a victim. And you go, did I bring this on myself? Like where, where along the way have I failed? And I felt that failure through this whole process, judgment from family, from friends, even putting this podcast out there, that comes with judgment. But I've got to a point where... I don't really care about those opinions because what's really important, what's always driven me forward is this quest to be heard in the right way so that others learn. It is the only reason we're doing this, isn't it? Absolutely.
0: And it's probably a good time to say thanks to all those listeners who have reached out and shared the positive impact that Emma's story has had on processing their own experiences. But now it's time to pick up on the conversation we had with Dr Muir, starting with a question looking at that victim impact statement from the other side of the coin. Would someone high in psychopathy actually be capable of recognising the impact that they've had on a victim?
2: Yeah, that's exceptionally hard to say as a rule. But I mean, we do know that that empathy switch is generally turned off and, and sometimes they know how to cognitively understand the harm that was caused but doesn't necessarily mean they're going to feel genuine remorse for it the other thing is it's hard to tease out what is remorse versus what is like shame embarrassment regret feeling upset about the effects on their own life you know those can look quite similar in terms of the body language of feeling ashamed and embarrassed for oneself versus actually being upset for the other person
1: I think that's a very key point. So the other part of that was at the end of the sentencing the detective who I'd been working with that whole time was amazing. He gave me a letter that was from Andrew, but it's like a four page. I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry for everything. And I guess my question about that is is, you know, again, that genuineness of it. Like I remember getting it and being like, This is this feels like another manipulation.
2: Yeah. I think the things you'd be looking at is like, what is the depth of language that's used? Is it a lot of superficial generic (laughs) statements or or are they actually able to identify and specify like what the impact is on you? Like how much of it also is about, again, them like feeling regret versus actually focusing on the the impact it's it's had on you. I, I can't comment in the case of Andrew, but like what was your sense of reading that letter?
1: Absolute bullshit basically. And along with that, I'm promised to pay everything back again. Like I'll do everything I can. And then the next few weeks away, then going and getting the money reduced that he has to pay back for the sentence. He was still trying to get his way back and to be like, I can explain to you why why I got to this point. And, you know, if you'd give me that sort of chance, it's like, God, no, God, no. It's very empty and very superficial with it and not really
2: anything going into the actual impact. People who are quite manipulative and high in psychopathy – They do want to be seen in a positive light. They do care about their facade, like it's all this impression management. Sending a letter maintains a sense that I'm a good person, look at me doing the right thing. So it could be serving a function like that.
0: And now a word from our sponsors. I want to take a moment to tell you about my podcast,
2: Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage. In 1984, a woman named Phyllis Cottle was abducted in broad daylight, tortured, and left to die in a burning car in Akron, Ohio. At the time, I was a rookie reporter covering this horrific story. Since then, I've reported every kind of crime imaginable. I've been able to leave most of them at work, but not this one. The one that buried itself under my skin and stayed put. Phyllis Cottle was a badass woman, and I want to tell you her story. A production of Evergreen Podcasts and signature title of the Killer Podcast Network. You can find Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage wherever you get your podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at KillerPodcast.com. The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up,
1: but not anymore
0: i know you know what happened they went into houses and killed women and children
1: what are you thinking what a mess
0: u.s marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood
1: and at the center of it all
0: is 25 year old sergeant frank Wooderick.
1: and me murder in house two a new podcast from crowd network
2: On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America.
0: You're listening to Stop the Killing. I'm Sarah Ferris. Join me and my co-host, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program, Catherine Schweit.
2: I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've watched the reality of poor planning. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I have really sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Our
0: hope is that together we can stop the cries of never again fading into until next time.
2: Okay, so it's Sunday, January
1: 19th. Nineteenth. For nearly a year, my friend Aria dated men she met online. Lots of duds, disappointments, and some disasters. But then along came Mordecai, and
0: Aria fell hard. I opened the door. There's a woman standing there, and she said, I think you know someone named Mordecai Horowitz?
2: said, oh, you better come in. In 2019, a friend of mine fell for a sensitive millionaire named
1: Mordecai, and then she found out she wasn't the only one. It was way too good to be true. I'm Kathleen Goldhar, the host of Do You Know Mordecai from USG Audio, available now wherever you get your podcasts. The other questions I had was about this process of stepping up and and reading your victim impact statement. So what does that process of doing a victim impact statement or not doing it impact maybe the psychology of somebody?
2: Yeah, I suppose from like a trauma framework, if you think about when someone experiences a trauma, there's that real sense of powerlessness and you're often at the time really blocked from carrying out the actions that you want to. You're in fight or flight mode, but you can't actually act on that. So you're, you're really stuck in that freeze. Going into court and being able to stand up and speak to the effects that the trauma has on you it could help to carry out that blocked response to regain some sense of power or strength but it's still quite an individual thing like how did you find it it was such a strong
1: process to go through first time I went to court and I saw his face in November the year previously I remember just been like shaking and being angry in that seat and it was like it was good I could feel like it finally coming out so I'm sure everybody will experience it differently. And then I realized I didn't have anybody around me actually at that time of court because the detective was supposed to be coming that day. And I still actually, I feel myself now feeling really unsupported in that moment. But that was also because I didn't think I um could step up and get that support from people around me. Like to be like, you know what? I'm just going to court. I'm just going to be in that room. Why do I need it? But I think it actually, you don't realize how much that impact has and and you kinda of go, oh, I'm strong, I'm strong, I'll get through it. And it's fine. I'm just gonna to go to court and listen. And it was like I was so angry. I wanted to shout at the judge and be like, He is lying. <laughs> and so then when I went back for that main sentencing, I did prepare myself and I had like my solid rock woman beside me and then the detective was there as well, which was really useful. I could feel my body tensing up and just this process of going, like, No, I'm gonna I'm gonna get through this and I'm gonna say those words and then sitting in the court waiting. It was weird because is quite a, a wonderful person, but I could feel like even though she was sitting beside me, I felt like I had, she had her arms around me virtually, like this little wee security bubble. So I sat there and I felt really, really strong having her there. He comes in this feeling of just like, ah. I actually think I've had a lot of anger coming up at that time. And that drove me to to feel really comfortable and confident and strong when I got up there and said my words. For that journey through the court, is there anything that as someone's going through that could do to prepare and survive that process better?
2: Will you describe some really key things that you were able to do in terms of having a support person there? It's it's super important to have someone around you who makes you feel safe and kind of in control. And then being familiarised exactly with what to expect. You know, who's going to be there? Where will you sit? Where will they be? What are you going to say? What might they be saying? maybe having like a grounding tool because when you see someone who's offended against you, you can feel the return of that high level of distress, intense distress. You feel like you're back at the time where you were victimized. So having a tool at hand to actually ground yourself into the present moment, to know that you're safe, to know that you can't be harmed in that moment is really important. And then if there are ways beforehand to gradually start exposing yourself to reminders and cues of them in in preparation because it'll just reduce that flooding if you've kind of been avoiding all memories and thoughts of that person then suddenly you're just confronted with them it's quite a dramatic change so if there is any way to kind of gradually begin to expose yourself to reminders but sometimes you know that's something that you might need depending on the level of trauma and your response to it you might need some psychological support to kind of guide you through that exposure process that definitely helped
1: me a lot with that preparation was actually tuning into my body and how it was reacting. So doing all the trauma release exercises, I I hate to say it's so cheesy, but the breathing did really help like getting through, like being able to be aware when I was being triggered and when something would come up and then try and regulate it because it was just this kind of like internal overwhelming taking over of it, like hijacking of my system. So I had to keep coming back. And while it was the psychology piece, my body was the really the bit that was reacting so strongly and didn't didn't realize that it was like i had to keep changing that and then the the brain would kind of settle down and and be like okay you're safe you're safe because that's really what it is like when you see that person you you feel unsafe and you feel like you are under attack even just visually or thinking about it even though he's not there in that moment one of the the questions i think is this idea of trust uh, trusting again and how do you move forward with how do i move forward with that
2: yeah, after you've been betrayed or traumatized, your threat detector system is likely to be quite out of whack after that and like it can obviously overcorrect. So you'll find yourself becoming very hypervigilant to threat, you'll experience a lot of anxiety in new relationships, you come to kind of mistrust yourself almost. It is important to get some assistance or tools to, to recalibrate that and Part of it is, like you've talked about, knowing how to soothe your physical stress reaction when the alarm bells do go off. So once you can calm yourself down a little bit, then you can be in a better position to be able to like weigh up that, the actual evidence that's in front of you. Like, Is there actually evidence of someone being mistrustful versus what is the evidence that you can trust this person? And getting that balance right is quite hard and it's really good to check in with people around you around their impressions if you're starting to move forward and build new relationships. But I guess overall it is it is recognizing that trust is still like an adaptive human function. Like we need to trust others to, you know, to work in cohesive groups, to live in a healthy way. You can't obviously isolate yourself forever. So recognizing that that trust is still still a good thing and maybe contextualizing things that these people who have betrayed your trust, are typically not the norm. That This is a minority, but I guess, yeah, it's important, I think, as well to develop some kind of strategy going forward around like what your boundaries will be, knowing what your red flags and warning signs are, how will you get support from others if your smoke detectors are going off, you're not sure if someone's trustworthy.
1: I love that idea of smoke detectors. That gut instinct is still one of the biggest keys. But one of the things I think I've learned along the way is that's only going to occur when I take space and time for me to actually check in. My life was so full and busy that I wasn't actually putting myself first. And so I wasn't taking time out to actually tune in and listen. And that feels like that's been a really strong practice now, whether it's mindfulness or whatever you do. Like I've got to have days, there's days where I have my grief days. They haven't been as much recently, but those grief days when they come on, they can. They're, sometimes they're like a Sunday and it's really annoying because it's a day you finally let go and you're like, yay, I can chill out. And then you're like, oh no, oh damn it, here it comes. And you've, I've got to sit with it and oh my god I just feel like coming on now talking about it and it's so uncomfortable that process and it's not like it doesn't
2: just end does it doesn't just it suddenly stop no no it doesn't it is something that will become maybe less intense or less frequent but like you say will come up and it's super important to make room for those feelings and show yourself that you're you are strong and you can actually hold those feelings and you will get through them they're like a wave you know they will have a, a crest but they will Fall, they do have an, a natural lifespan if you make some room for them
1: you know I look at it and I go "Well, how do most people get through traumatic experiences like this I see people years later that have had something from 20 30 years ago that they haven't processed
2: it also depends on like the extent of the trauma how chronic it has been in someone's life if it's something that's been pervasive from an early age Within a multitude of relationships, it is going to take a really, really long time to get through. And you can't necessarily stop some of the reactions that will come up or being triggered or being mistrusting, but you can learn the skills to regulate it once it does come up.
1: How do we be supportive in a way that is going to nurture someone through this?
2: I think when someone has been victimized by a trauma, it's really helpful to have some support there that's just reliable predictable and calm because of the the whole whirlwind and chaos of trauma and how that's impacted you like what you need is just something that's a stable base so anything people can do just to be predictable and also just being a a container for someone's emotions like validating it's okay to feel them letting them cry staying calm being that kind of physical presence And then avoiding things like questioning or blame, because obviously someone experiences a trauma, there's so much shame and embarrassment and people do blame themselves. So having someone who can reflect that you're not at fault, that's really helpful. Because you can't take the pain
1: away. You can't fix it for people.
2: Yeah, definitely people want to problem solve. And like you say, that's not what you want in that moment. You don't want to learn how you could have done something different or like what could have been because how's that gonna help at that point it's happened.
1: is there anything with recovery from trauma that people can do that we know are like the the go-tos for that?
2: In terms of timeline, it's it's difficult to put a number on it because trauma does present so differently for different people and they've had that really developmental trauma, something that's happened early in life and has been chronic, that's gonna require like a long-term therapeutic intervention and you know because if someone's never had any reliable trusting relationships they've kind of got to build from the bottom up with that and the therapeutic relationship often becomes that So actually having a therapist be present be reliable be calm and listen to you and work with you for a year or a number of years it actually teaches you what trust is within that relationship and in terms of like I suppose the different phases of trauma recovery, like the first would be really getting to know and understand your body and your physical reaction to trauma, like you've talked about, those mindfulness skills, to observe your reactions, knowing that emotions have this lifespan like a wave, knowing how changing your posture, your breathing, all those things can can reduce your your response. Because when people go through something like this, often what they come to fear is actually their own body, like their own reaction to triggers not even you know it can become removed a little bit from the the perpetrator and actually just be this fear of yourself and then it would be processing traumatic memories and sometimes that does mean going back through and revisiting the memories talking about things in like a, a kind of chronological narrative around it there are really effective therapies like EMDR which is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing which is one of the most effective therapies for treating traumatic memories reducing the distress that's actually associated with remembering and that's something that a therapist can do and then like gradual exposure to cues and triggers because when people go through this they often start to withdraw and avoid any reminders and then the world becomes really small so kind of Starting to get back out there, re-engage in life, re-engage with people and activities and places that make you feel calm and safe and strong and making space for joy. And then I think establishing some new boundaries going forward around who are you going to let into life? What are your non-negotiables and, and that sort of thing coming up with a plan? You know, part of the, the difficulty with trauma is how your brain has processed those memories. And when you're you're having a traumatic reaction, certain parts of the brain are offline. So the kind of rational thinking parts, different memory centers that actually like process and store something as having happened in the past in this kind of chronological coherent narrative that you need to actually just like file it in the back and then move forward with life. That kind of doesn't happen when you go through a trauma. So EMDR creates that chronological narrative of the memory but it also does so while you activate the regions of the brain that need to be activated to process something so one way of doing it is while you remember distressing parts of the trauma you'll observe your therapist they'll be moving their their hand from side to side kind of like a, a hypnotherapist but what they're doing is they're getting your eyes to move and that activates the regions of the brain that you need to process the memory And it's amazing, like it really hugely reduces distress associated with that memory. It's it's such a powerful tool. I've done it with people and like the amazement, people are often very sceptical about it because it sounds like hypnotherapy, which it's not. So they go into it with a healthy level of scepticism, but watching their reaction when the distress reduces, it's really amazing. Similar
1: things when I'm doing trauma release exercises in the body with the shaking, And working with that, that's been one of my big go-tos because I can bring on the shake quite quickly when I think about a con man and I can make my body do it now and it's great. It's a nice way of actually letting that release. But then if I think about the kids, I'm like, it's gone. I can just, it just goes because they don't make me feel that response. So I can desensitize it and it just gets rid of that adrenaline and that tension that gets stored in the body. One of the things I wanted to bring up was that he will be released one day
2: how do people deal with the fact that that release might come though? If you do have genuine fear around your safety, putting mechanisms in place to actually keep yourself safe. But part of the difficulty too is that people can start to really withdraw from life and avoid a lot of places and activities that they think they might see that, per- that person it can be quite a downward spiral if there isn't actually any physical safety threat anymore. So as much as possible, trying to keep engaging in life and not giving in to the to the avoidance, to demonstrate to yourself that you are safe, you can cope. That is obviously an extremely challenging thing to do. So professional support with that if you need as well.
1: That fear is not something that I like to sit in because that just feels yucky. And I've already been in that for a long time. So I choose not to.
2: Yeah, with recovery, I think one of the big things that people can find helpful is like thinking of it in terms of values. So how do I want to show up For myself in this life do I want to protect myself and avoid all risks but in doing so not form deeper connections or do I want to actually live openly with vulnerability knowing that yes that can bring risk but it also like love and connection are too important for me to give up so I guess it's like taking that level of risk can be easier when you see that the upside is that you've committed to this like brave courageous open life because what is the alternative to that
1: So I guess the last thing is, can leopards change their spots, Sophie? Can con men ever change and do good in the world?
2: I mean, they can change their behavior, right? So they can learn to regulate their urges or their antisocial thoughts and actually change behavior, but you're not going to see a change in underlying personality structure for someone who's high in psychopathy and has really entrenched antisocial beliefs and values and it's, it's going to be very hard to change the underlying personality structure. It's not a very nice ending, but it's, it's, yeah, that is reality.
1: I have learned so much from having Dr. Sophie as part of this podcast and our conversations have helped highlight to me how much it wasn't my fault. What this person did and his intentions was for his own gains. And that I was this target and there are things that I will always do differently from, from this experience. I wish I didn't have to have this experience to, to know that. So the big ones for me are boundaries. Absolutely with boundaries and, and listening to my gut. I actually, that's probably the most important one. And it's actually served me so well in the last, Few months as I have been recovering from this, it's just become really clear of how important that, that gut is. And it's what I teach about, it's what I speak about. And the more that I practice that, the clearer I feel about what went wrong over that time. And so I don't blame myself. I have forgiven myself for making those errors of judgment because this person, yeah, he went out and intentionally targeted me it's really hard to explain as well how how hurtful and the psychological damage somebody can cause from that. So I know that I will still have to repair for a long time. And as we talked about trust and rebuilding, there is so many layers to that. But if I can take anything away from what Sophie has shared with all of you and, and with Sarah and I, it's that that listening to the gut and the boundaries in place are crucial. It doesn't mean you don't let somebody in and I will, I will forever be careful of putting a wall up because my life is not going to be in a tower now where I don't have these connections and relationships. That is not what this has taught me. This is about bringing the right people into my life and serving those connections and those relationships. So, you know, in some ways, I thank Sophie for those lessons. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm ready to thank Andrew for those lessons because uh, he doesn't deserve anything from me. But I know this experience has taught me so much about what is, what's okay and what's not okay in my life. And I wish I'd known them in my 20s. Um, I wish i knew them in my 30s. And now as I move into the next 40s decade of my life, I'm pretty sure I'm going to be unstoppable.
0: Shadow dark palm slow and stretch and tall and her hands hold
2: them
0: up that's cold A shadow dark upon the wall Moving slow and stretch and tall and out to the mountains her gaze if you liked our story,
1: please share with family and friends. And like, subscribe and review so others can learn from my lessons. If you or anyone you know has been affected by something similar, please reach out for help. You are not alone. We've included some links in our show notes. Conning the Con was made with the input of Dr. Sophie Muir and the original music is by the talented Aroha
0: Min. Something is creeping in, don't
2: follow it down. OhioMysteries.com